You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drum. Beat out all Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano and the program is podcast. If you go to 3cr.org.au, it'll be up in the next few days. Now, we've always got special guests, but we've got a very, very special guest today, Jane Morton. How are you, Jane? Not too bad, thank you. Now, you know why you're special? No. Because I'm actually in the studio. For the last six months, I've been doing three-way conversations that have been terrible. But at least uh-huh. I'm in the studio, and hopefully you'll be. I'll have guests in the studio by next year sometime, so if things go well. Now, Jane, I don't know if you know much about Radical Australia. We only asked two questions, and you've got 56 <laughs> minutes, believe it or not. All right. The first question is just to orientate our listeners. Uh, what year were you born? 1952. Ah, oh, you're a youngster compared to me. I was born in 51. Uh, <laughs> yes. So we've got, we'd have uh, similar experiences, I think. Um, what's the first thing you can remember about being on planet Earth? So, well, that's a hard one, but I think I can remember we grew up in North Clayton when it was still fields. Mm-hmm. And before the drive-in was built and before my nest was built. So I think I can remember going down the road to get eggs. Right. So what, you were surrounded by, what, fruit farms or veggie farms? or well, do you remember? mainly just fields. Fields, right. But there was a, um, a poultry farm. It's hard to believe, isn't it, in 2020 that, you know, what, 65 years later, that uh, Clayton's now the almost the CBD of Melbourne. It's yes. just hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, do you do, do, you do much it's, driving? Me now? No, because I live in the inner city. Yeah, right. No, it's, it's quite interesting. I, I Because of my occupation, I go out a fair way. And it's 95 kilometres from one side of Melbourne to the other. It's extraordinary. <laughs> right. And um, you were born in Melbourne? I was. You don't remember what hospital? No. Not the old Jesse no. McPherson? The old Jesse McPherson? I have no idea. No. Okay. I have no idea. All right. And uh, I assume your parents are both, uh, have both died? Yes, they have. Right. What type of... Did they Were they born in Australia or they came here from overseas? My mother was born in Australia and she's descended from... German refugees came here. Well, some some came early on in the um, early days of colonisation and were shopkeepers in the in the um, the wine growing area of, of South Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather was German and fled Nazi Germany just before the war, but my father was the the last of the British aristocracy, and he. Um, had not much money. Right. But he, he had been a tea farmer, a tea, a tea plantation owner. Right. Well, in he, India at uh-huh. the time of Gandhi and had to 
leave. Um, abandon that and come to Australia. Right. Is and it... met my mother actually on the ship, on the ship between um, Britain and India. So this is one of those shipboard romances that went a little bit further. <laughs> yes, quite a bit further. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, was, what was your mum like? Um, she was an unhappy housewife, I think. Right. Well, was she she's talented, very sad. And yeah, well, she's a talented woman. She had woman. been a physio. Mm-hmm. She got chronic fatigue. And oh. then she didn't work again from when she was about, I don't know, 40 or 50. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but she had a sort of second career in sort of property speculation, just buying a, buying run-down properties, moving us into them, renovating them, and then sort of moving on to the next. Right. And what's... I think she was fairly unhappy, in that, and, and she did my, sort of marry my father on the rebound of her, her true love who left her during the war, or sort of after the war, right. came back and, and, and left her. So it was a very tragic story. I think she was really quite unhappy, but... Mm. But a good role model in terms of somebody who had no doubt that she had an equal right to an opinion, for example. Well, she would have been quite courageous in the 60s and 70s to actually be speculating on properties. <laughs> yes, well, uh, yes, I think she was a sort of frustrated businesswoman. Mm. Because, you know, it was the way to get forward in Australia in those days. You, you know, like you said, you'd buy a rundown property, you'd live in it, you'd... Renovate it, and then you'd move on, and, and you'd live off the, mm. the earnings for the next few years. Now that's that's pretty extraordinary for a woman in that during that period. Hmm. Mm. And did the, and how about your dad? What was he like? Well, he was a very proper English gentleman who, I'm, sadly for him, had been sent off to um, boarding school at the age of about five or six. Right. And so he was. I think between that and and going and fighting in the war. He was sort of, it was very quiet. Right. Um, fairly shy sort of man. Mm. Did, did the marriage last? You said that there was a, it was a rebound marriage. Look, it lasted, but I don't think it brought great happiness to either of them, really. Right. right. But, yeah, it lasted right till the end, right. which I suppose is something. Mm. And did you have any brothers and sisters? Yes, I've got a younger sister, a year and a half younger. A year and a half younger, so... What was it? Was it was it a pretty sombre upbringing when you were very young, or was it, you can remember joyous moments? Oh, I think my sister and I were, were joyous enough. <laughs> <laughs> the best fun was playing playing. By the time we were in the third house, we had a, we were on a very steep hill, and so things like playing billy carts with the kids next door and yeah. um, various tennis ball games and going on expeditions on our bikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it was, um, it was fine. But yeah. it, it, I was. My mother had insist, had worked out with her mother that we should go to a private school, right? Because that was the best place for an education. And so I think the school was quite sombre. Mm. Although my sister says I should be more grateful because it was a very good school. Right. <laughs> so this but is it in, was um, stultifying, really stultifying. Was this in primary school or secondary school? All the way through. All the way through. Of, you did thirteen years 13 of years private education. Grammar school. Right, right. Yes. And right. So it wasn't co educational. No, it wasn't no. co educational. Right. And you know, it wasn't something I was thinking about at the time, but I certainly by the time I when I suddenly went to uni and was in a co educational situation, I couldn't notice the difference because of course there was no question about girls doing physics or maths. Let's go back to uh, secondary school. You said it was a bit sombre. What do you mean by that? Well, it was unbelievably strict. Um, someone got expelled for putting on Abscol, Aboriginal Scholarships, poster up on the wall. Ooh. Somebody else got expelled for wearing a maxi skirt. Like We'd just gone from minis to maxis. And when we got our school tunics from the shops... They were always incredibly long, so you'd have to cut a foot or more off to make them sort of as short as you were allowed to. And then right. suddenly maxis were in, right. so someone wore it just without cutting the foot off the length, uh-huh. and she got expelled. So they must have had a long, <laughs> they must have had a long waiting list of parents willing to pay to put their girlies in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, the teaching, I'm, I'm sure, was very good. Yeah. So, so did you excel at anything in secondary college? 
Excelled in everything. Whoa! <laughs> Tell us about it. Tell us if this is well, the time to skite. Yeah, I was ducks at the school. Ooh, that's good. Guess what? Yeah, Guess look, what? Guess what? What? You're talking to another ducks of the school. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any, any, any favourite subject? Well, look, the, the subject that changed everything for me was Australian history. Right. Because we had this amazing woman, um, radical American, <laughs> uh, who taught Australian history at our school. And she was one who introduced me to the idea that history is written by the victors. Right. And it's also that it's a matter of opinion. You can write history very differently, depending upon what you're trying to say. And this was just amazing to me. So in year 12, when otherwise I just did pure physics, you know, two maths and all that, you know, pure science, yes. I kept Australian history just so I could stay <laughs> learning from that teacher. So, um, so was, that so an, was that an extra subject you did? No, no, but I just meant I didn't do chemistry up. Oh, right. Right, right. <laughs> so I could still do Australian history. Yeah, I t- she was quite amazing, and she she yeah. she, she would um, she always she never wore a skirt. When, one time they made her wear a skirt to speech night. Yes, she wore stilettos and and short socks. <laughs> <laughs> that was her protest. <laughs> yes, so she she was quite amazing. Remember at the beginning of the beginning of this chat, I said there'll be a lot of parallels with our lives. It's quite interesting. I um. I did the same, you know, academic stream. But I went to a public school and uh, not much was expected of you. And one day in French class, this was about four months before the uh, final exams, because remember, we used to just have final exams. I saw a history paper, which was on... Uh, and I went to the principal and I said, I said, look, I want to sit for the history exam at the end of the year. And I did and got the highest mark in the school and I never went to a history lesson <laughs> after oh, year 10. But you're right, it's a passion. History, that's what I'm saying. History is a passion, isn't it? Look, it really wasn't so much the history. It was just this sudden sort of surprising idea mm. that not everything was as it seemed. Mm. Mm. And that, that was quite amazing to me. The other thing, the other amazing lesson I remember from school was once we had a um, substitute maths teacher and he spent the, the lesson showing us sort of patterns in the numbers. Mm. Um, like when you, I can't remember exactly how you do it, but when you multiply by 11, you sort of add to get in towards the middle. So, anyway, wow. uh, it, was all, it was all the patterns in, in the numbers, and mm. I actually did, uh, I really loved maths. All right, so this would have been what, 68, 69? Yes, yes. Right. Um, 1970 was year 12, 70. and then I was at uni, 71. 71. So, and during this period, obviously, if you're living in Melbourne, there was a lot of uh, anti-Vietnam War stuff going on. Did that have any impact on you? Well, in the first Vietnam moratorium, I was still at school, so it was just sort of unimaginable actually to skip school and go to it or anything. But I, I was, I was sort of vaguely aware of it. But of course, when I got to university, it was much, much more on my radar. Mm. What university did you go to? Uh, Melbourne Uni. Melbourne Uni, and uh, what, what did you what did you do? Well, I could never decide between psychology and political science, mm-hmm. so I did both as long as I possibly could, right up to fourth year honours, mm-hmm. and then I think I had to opt for psychology because at least you could have a, you know earn money that way. Well, there's not much difference, is there, when you think about it? Political <laughs> science and psychology. Yes. <laughs> it's similar. It's similar. It's um, similar. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. We had to earn money. I mean, I did medicine because I had to earn money. Basically, it's not that hmm. I was that interested in it. But did you have the pressure from your family that you, you needed to do something to earn a living? Not at all. No, 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 no. 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 Again, that was another thing from my mother. She, you know, choosing subjects or choosing choosing university courses. Um, it was just you know. So what do you want? Do you need what do you need to get into that? Right. No, she was very supportive of just doing whatever we wanted. Mm-hmm. And actually, I got into medicine, but I chose psychology. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that it would be a bit of a tough road, you know, just sort of straitjacket to do medicine. Uh, Plus, yeah. I was interested in the in the um, interpretation of dreams, which I wouldn't have got to do in medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd read. Um, Freud's interpretation of dreams while I was still at school. Right. And 
So I actually was interested in psychoanalysis mainly. Not mm. that there was much of that in the first four years. Look, I don't know. Do you still practice psychology? Yes. Yes. Only very part time now because uh, yeah. I gave up my work to work on climate. Yeah. About seven years ago. Yeah, I kind of got a bolt from heaven about a few years ago regarding um, psychology and psychoanalysis. Remember that psychoanalysis was big and then everybody thought it was a load of garbage and it's come back in fashion now because of the concept of neuroplasticity (laughs) and obviously spending all that time with somebody does have an effect on you. (laughs) Uh, So when you started off in psychology, what type, where did you start work? Um, I started work at Mont Park. You skipped over the whole of my university career. I was in university politics. You were in university. That's not that important, is it? In Mel- <laughs> University of Melbourne. I mean, I came down yeah. in nineteen seventy one. Maybe I met you. Who knows? We used to come. Well, down. I, I stood. I stood for um, SRC president against Michael Danby. Did you? Nineteen seventy four, I think. And you won. No, I lost, <laughs> and, and all the things that followed. What, we, um, what you lost every, every time? No, no. No. I lost, and he got, he got in, and, um, oh. and then um, they withdrew from the Australian Union of Students, Australian yeah. Students' Union. But I, I also helped up, set up uh, Melbourne Uni Women's Liberation. Right. What year was that? That was, well, 71, 72. And and we we did the um, childcare demonstrations. Yep. We we um we went and presented a petition to the university assembly, but we, the anarchists broke the door down for it. That'd be right. And yeah. we occupied the university assembly. Yep, yep, yep. That'd be that'd and be. Got arrested. Yeah. That, I, yeah. That'll be the Melbourne anarchists. I remember them. Yeah. Yeah. With Greg Smith, who yeah. went on. Yeah. He went on to greater things. <laughs> he saw the inside of Pentridge. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and outside. Yeah. Well, over the wall. Exactly. They were very they were very um I came down to Melbourne in seventy one to work with the Collingwood three store across the road from Free CR. I think it was uh, forty six Smith Street. And uh they were a pretty important mob at that stage, but then they Kind of got into this rut of criminality, thinking that every criminal, you know, was a was a hero. And I remember I was squatting the Archbishop's residence down at uh, Turak near the railway line with this other bloke, and we we're pulling up the um, floors and boiling potatoes. And this bloke comes in with a gun, points at our heads, and says, "I'm looking for Greg Smith." <laughs> 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 yeah, that's when things went bad. <laughs> yeah, so. so Yes. So what would you? We, s- had to, we had the we had the police at our door yeah. because my, one of my boyfriends was a draft dodger, right. not a draft dodger, but um, a peace activist. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that was shocking. Yeah, oh, they used to come on campus and you'd kind of try to beat them out, push them out of campus. These days, you wouldn't get any reaction if they came on campus, would you? Well, I don't know. It seemed rather like looking back, I think it was fairly ambitious. This idea that we were going to somehow stop them coming onto, onto the university campus, but it was a bit of a thing at the time. Yeah, yeah. So did you actually become president of the SRC? No, I lost. You only went once? Yeah, look, I didn't really want to do it. It was just a view that because Michael Danby's view was that the Australian Union students shouldn't have taken a position on Palestine. Right. And that he was going to sort of basically, you know, try and... Um, do it in. Mm-hmm. It was a coalition that was sort of pulled together at the last minute to try and defeat him because I was in Women's Liberation and just had a, had a bit of a constituency because of that. I just got pulled into trying to beat it, but I couldn't. You couldn't, right? So no, it, was, it wasn't there. It wasn't something I did that much. I was on the on the SRC that time. I got an ordinary position, right? But it was. I don't know. All that kind of politics, I think, is very tiring. Oh, it is very tiring because it's very in your face. It's very tiring. Did you, um, you know, when you were at the university, what drew you to the women's liberation movement? Well, it was that thing that I started saying. It was just the shock of suddenly being in tutorials with young men who just 
thought it was perfectly natural just to speak right through you as though you didn't exist. Mm. And having been to an all-girls school for 13 years and had only a sister and only female cousins, <laughs> I, just, I was really quite shocked. Right. Well, they and did. Then, yeah, well, that private quite school. Trivial things like a friend, a friend was um, evicted from a bar because in that stage, that stage, women weren't allowed to drink in the bars. That's right. <laughs> yeah. In the front bar. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, things like that I found really quite shocking. Well, obviously your sister was right. That uh, private school education put the steel rod in your back. <laughs> well, it certainly gave me something to compare ordinary life with. Yeah. So there, there is a positive to it. Yes. So did you did you do a master's or a doctorate in psychology? Did you one of these yeah, perennial I did, students? I did, clin- I did a clinical master's. Every time I had to write a thesis, though, I took a year off because <laughs> the thought was um, so difficult. So I went travelling twice. So I ended up taking eight years to finish the six years. Right. So where did you go with the travelling? Well, the first time I just went to Europe because my sister was there, mm-hmm. having nicked off at a very early age and gone travelling and she'd already been gone a year or more. So I went to see her, not even liking the idea of travel, but but then I got sort of the bug. I ended up in Morocco that time and got the bug, came back and did just two years of uni and then I went right across Asia, right across starting, well, starting in Ireland and right across Afghanistan, Iraq... Mm-hmm. Not Iraq, Iran, um, Pakistan, India, Nepal, and I think came home from Thailand that time. So yeah, yeah that was a pretty amazing adventure. Mm. How did, did were you by yourself or were you with somebody else? Or? No, it's by myself. Right. Well, with various people that I met, mm-hmm. which which was sometimes quite hairy. Yeah. What was it like in the? Uh, uh, Muslim-dominant countries like Iran and Afghanistan for you? Well, the worst was Turkey, where a young guy I was travelling with and I just about got sort of hijacked, kidnapped. But it was pretty difficult in Iran as well. And, And look, it was difficult in some ways in Afghanistan, but I just loved those... The Afghani people, especially the Afghani women, were just amazing. Mm-hmm. So look, look, there was always this element of danger, there's no doubt. I mean, I was always trying to be travelling at least with one other person, you know, preferably with two or three. Mm-hmm. But still, it was dangerous, but, but very, very interesting. So when you were in Afghanistan, was that the period of the kingdom or was that after the king had been overthrown? Um, it was still in the period of the kingdom, so it, right. there, there wasn't any fighting at the time. Yeah. You know, I was doing a very intact culture still with right. horse, horse drawn um, taxis, yeah. castles, yeah. and things, and and just sort of four wheel drives just going through the desert up north. Uh, I was doing some research on the Afghan Camelias, you know, in Central Australia, and um, and there was an interesting little aside which I've never followed up. There was a, a woman who was married to one of the Cameliers who actually went across to Afghanistan to look after the to educate the king's children. Hmm. An Australian woman. It's an extraordinary story. Yeah. So how did you survive during this period? Just uh... Well, I lived in great poverty and I worked as a waitress mainly. Mm-hmm. I worked on the buses to go away the second time, which was pretty good. Um but I mainly just lived extraordinarily cheaply and on what I could work and waitressing. Mm-hmm. And I assume you didn't have any of the injections that are recommended these days? <laughs> oh, for travelling? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think I did, actually. Did you? Right. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether it was good or not. Anyway, I didn't catch anything much. Not even hepatitis? I guess we're never quite the same again after Afghanistan. No, you never, not even hepatitis A? No, I didn't catch anything like that. Oh, that's excellent. So <laughs> when you finally finished this degree, okay, after, <laughs> after eight years, uh, what was what was your thesis in, in clinical psychology? Ah, groups. You see, I loved groups from early on. Mm-hmm. So we, we, ran, we ran some groups and researched them in various ways. Is that because you were experienced with women's liberation, the fact that they... 
organised in a different way? Um, I don't know. Right. Again, I had a, I had a favourite lecturer, and he was into sort of groups. But also, I remember that my favourite lecturer at university was dialectics. Did a lecture on dialectics, right. and uh, I wrote an essay at one point on dialectics. Right. And I think it was partly, well, no, I think I think it was more sort of carrying on from sort of psychoanalysis and dreams. I just recognised from early on that groups were a powerful forum for psychological change, like that you could get a lot more impact from seeing someone in a group and seeing them one-to-one. This, this would be a radical departure, wouldn't it, in that, during that period? This is, a, what, the 80s? Uh, no, no. At the whole of my, whole of my clinical psych master's year, did, we all did our thesis on these groups that we ran. Right. We, would, we ran so many groups. <laughs> right. But it was it was the era of encounter groups and all that sort of That's thing. That's right. Encounter culture, yeah. you know, yeah. we were, it was hippies. That's right. So yeah. it was sort of in the, the encounter group gestalt therapy sort of tradition. Yeah, it was that revolt against hierarchy at a personal level. Yeah. 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 You're quite right. It was big. Do you still think uh, group therapy is uh, useful? I think. Yeah, group therapy and groups in general. Mm. I, I think the thing I used to say then and I still think is true is that groups are a powerful force for good or for bad and it all depends on the group culture. Right. And how do you develop a group culture? Does the facilitator have a, an important role? Yes. Yes, it's interesting because, like, yeah, the, the groups that I used to run and the groups, say, now in the, in the Extinction Rebellion... It's a similar sort of thing. It's just sort of, it's getting group consent to help maintain the group culture because if you try and impose it from above, you mostly have a rebellion against you. Right. <laughs> but if, if there's a sort of consent and everyone's working on maintaining the group culture, that's how you get a healthy group. Mm-hmm. So do you think there's a, a, uh, a seminal um, structure for a group to maintain a healthy group? Yeah, I'm just talking about this, the, the uh, tyranny of structurelessness. Uh, yes. Now, we experienced the tyranny of structurelessness in the women's liberation movement mm. where we did try and operate, I think, with not much structure but then an informal structure. So that certainly was an illustration in some ways of what not to do. And that, and we had a really good working group structure. Um, we set up a working group on... Um, on abortion law reform, we set a working group up on domestic violence and refuges. We set up a working group on getting childcare at Melbourne Uni, and I don't know. Within a relatively small number of years, we'd made quite a bit of progress on all of them. So I think that working group structure, with a fair bit of autonomy, um, I think it's, it's, it works very well. I mean, we've gone the other way now, obviously, but look, I agree, it works very well. What do you think is the essential element of a successful group? Um, I mean, it doesn't matter what they're going for, but I'm just... What keeps it together? What keeps that culture? Oh, well, shared shared purpose. Right. Anything else in terms of the structure well, of the group itself? Well, good, good conflict resolution. <laughs> right. So a mechanism. You want, you want a mechanism by which you can... Uh, Resolve resolution, or is that correct? Well, look, there's always conflict, isn't there? And uh. and this is where this idea, I think, of dialectics is so useful. So, in in my work as a psychologist, quite often I was consulting to troubled teams because, yeah, what I went on to do, well, I went, I've worked in a variety of big psych hospitals first, but I went on to help set up Spectrum, the borderline personality disorder service. So quite often we were out consulting to troubled teams where there was a suicidal person in the ward and the team was in a massive fight about what to do with it, with, with the person. Um, and the process that seemed to work really well was just a thing that we still use in Extinction Rebellion, which is just going around the circle. So you'd get the whole staff there from the psychiatrist, you know, down to the ward, ward assistant. And just keep on going around, sort of gathering in the wisdom, like the blind men and the elephant, mm-hmm. all the different truths. 
and and putting them together rather than putting them in opposition to each other. So I think that was in a in a group process. If you can gather in the wisdom, um, the wisdom that comes from diversity, then I think you've got a healthy process. If you've got just people beating each other over the head trying to get their view of the world to sort of come out on top, well, apart from the fact it's really unpleasant, I think you end up with a worse result. Yes. Have you ever been to three CR? Yeah. Been upstairs. Oh, I think so. Yeah, there's one of the, one of the uh, pictures that's up there is actually of one of those, like you said, hippie consensus group meetings from the seventies. People all sitting around in a circle. Uh, well, you're right about about the fact that um, you know the group consensus and the group um, dynamics. But how would you appoint a, f- a facilitator? Do you think a facilitator is important in a group? And if it is, how would you appoint them? I'm, I'm in Extinction Rebellion now. No, no, no. I, I want to go back. I want generally. Because no, no. a lot of people... Okay, are, but I, yeah. Well, self-organising system. I got, it's hard to answer without talking about a self-organising system. Okay. You know, because I think there's... You know, I've been through consensus mm-hmm. in the women's liberation movement and also in Occupy, which is just like a living hell. <laughs> <laughs> I've been through voting, which is more like student politics, where you just stack the meeting until you get what you want. Right. Um... But I think the self-organising system is the way to go, which has it's sort of a, it's sort of a balance. I mean, it's it's consent rather than consensus, and it and basically it has the people who are doing the work as the ones who get to decide stuff, rather than people who just blow into the meetings and you know throw their weight around. Right. So I think this, that the self-organising system, well, you know, it's not perfect, and it takes some work to make it work, but. I think that's actually the way to go. Could you could you explain society more structured like that would be better off. Could you explain to people what a self organising system is? Well, um, basically, I think quite a few movements have spread around the world quite spontaneously, and Occupy was obviously one of them. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to try and spread really fast and really far, as Extinction Rebellion has. Um, you have to have a way that sort of to decide things locally, basically, because you can't say in the case of Extinction Rebellion, you can't run everything from the UK. That would be ridiculous. Um, so it, the structure of it is based around working groups. It sort of circles within circles. So you have some particular task that you're trying to do, like, say, um, media in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And the circle that would be dealing with that would have an external coordinator, which relates to all the other groups that are relevant, and an internal coordinator that keeps the whole thing sort of running, um, looks after people, makes sure things are done, makes sure the meetings run well. And then you might have other people who have other roles, particular roles, like um, being the person who oversees the Facebook or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, look, you have mandates where people have sort of their freedom to do a job but also the responsibility to do it and, and sort of others can remove them if they're not doing it. So I think it's a nice balance and you don't get tied up with endless wrangling because people are mainly just getting on with doing stuff. It's just got to be good enough to go, safe enough to try as opposed to just 3,000 hours been trying to battle into getting consensus. Well, that's right. What, 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 you, what you're talking about basically is about um, um, something, what i found over the years is the, the most successful things I've been involved in are those where there is a particular task to be carried out and people work around that task. Yes. Yeah, that's what I Definitely. Found. Yeah, because otherwise, otherwise... A task to be done. A task to be done, yeah. Otherwise, it just gets, as you said, for hundreds of hours, people get frustrated, they leave... They get angry and nothing ever ever happens. Yes, yes. Mm. So I think by far the best groups are where there's a task that people can see is relevant, that they're keen on, mm. and you don't spend too long meeting about it. Just go, well, who's going to bring the, who's going to paint the banners? Who's going to bring the banners? Okay, um, who's going to who's going to do the press release? Okay, off you go. Yeah, yeah. You got to have trust. You got to have trust in the people in the group that you're working with, which yes, builds absolutely. up over time because. Uh, yeah, and you're right about the blow-ins. I mean, <laughs> that's always been an issue, hasn't it? The blow-ins. They come in, they come out, they destroy things and they disappear. Uh, so 
in your, let's say, legitimate psychological work, where you got paid, you said you started off at Mont Park. What did you think about Mont Park when you started off? <laughs> well, I had, had a wonderful boss, so it was a really happy time. Um, we just got on like a house on fire right from there, for, from the, my job interview. And same thing, like we was sort of like my Australian history teacher, where he'd just go, oh, wow, that's a great idea. Why don't you go do it? Um, how can I help? And it was a very peaceful place at that time. It was before all the community mental health. So it was people used to refer to it as, as the... As the um, Country, country estate, I think. Yes, anyway, right. the country yeah. retreat. So there's great big palm trees, great big lawns. Um, until quite recently, there'd been, you know, just like a whole village with vegetables and vegetable garden and everything. It was just coming out of that phase, but still just very so sort of peaceful. And without that pressure that came quite soon after to just charge people really, really quickly, if people sort of needed to live there, they just could live there in quite a peaceful kind of way. So it would have been an extension of the old asylum concept. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. still an old asylum yeah. when yeah. I was first there. Mm. Mm. So what, what did you think, what effect do you think the so-called deinstitutionalisation had on uh, mental health here in, uh, in Australia, especially Victoria, which you're familiar with? Well, it was shocking because the aspiration was to close down the big institutions and set up this magnificent sort of network of community mental health services, but they pinched most of the money on the way through. So they set up this very understaffed, under-resourced community mental health services, um, which meant I think a lot of people ended up just sort of homeless that, yeah. that had been in institutions but were now receiving sort of quite inadequate support in the community. If not homeless, in sort of boarding houses and just yeah. Yeah. basically, I think in some ways, living a much less happy life than some of those people at Mont Park... <laughs> Yeah, and much more prone to individual exploitation. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's the, that was no, my experience. You know that uh, all of a sudden, like you said, there was no money, there wasn't the staff, and you expected to do ten times the amount of work, and um, it was very difficult. And it's continued right up till the uh, recent inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in those times, it was still therapeutic communities. You see, so mm. I only stayed at Mont Park for a year and a half because I actually always wanted to go and work at Toad Hall, which was a therapeutic community at Royal Park. Mm -hmm. Very, very innovative. Same thing, just learning from experience. Just this, you know, just try it and see if it works. Reflect on it, move on. It was an incredible place to work. Um, But of course, as that period of um, austerity came in, that got shut down. And in the end, there was basically no residential treatment. Well, the people, of course, I was mainly working with were people with severe personality disorders, Mm -hmm. people with you know, massively traumatised from early childhood. And, yeah, we went through what I call the dark ages where there was just no residential treatment and yet there were people who were so suicidal and so severely self-harming that it was very, very difficult to to provide treatment on some sort of once-a-week basis in the community. So how did you feel when you went home? Went home? After a day day of... After a day at work, Um, knowing that you you know that anything could happen. Well, but see, mostly you see, I I worked in Mont Park when it was still you could stay for longer. Mm. Then I worked at Royal Park in Toad Hall for about four or five years, and I felt very happy going home because we were doing magnificent work, and it was residential. Mm. Was sort of harder after that when when the the residential treatment had closed down, and we were trying to sort of replicate it just in ordinary wards. But see, I always worked in the inpatient setting, so I wasn't having the stress of trying to do the outpatient setting, the outpatient community services. People were just always getting burned out there right from the start. Mm. But look, I mostly was satisfied with what I was doing in the sense that, you know, we were doing good and we didn't, you know, we didn't lose, considering we were always working with the most suicidal people. We didn't really lose that many, well, hardly any. Um, so look, I mostly felt satisfaction, but the stress came from being sort of the meat in the sandwich between all this cost cutting and inadequate services and feeling like you had to somehow fill the gap personally. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that was what led me, well, it was one of the things that contributed to me leading in the end, but, but mostly I was in the best parts of the service system, particularly working at Spectrum, which was about the last 10 years.
that I worked. It was very satisfying. So what did you do at Spectrum? Well, first of all, I helped set it up. So I was one of Mr. Kennett's consultants. Right. (laughs) Because I'd been working out at Footscray, and Uh and that was dismal as, you know, the Kennett years came in. Mm -hmm. So I got got a redundancy from Footscray Psychiatric Centre and became one of Mr. Kennett's consultants. I wrote a a consultancy um, report. Mm-hmm. on what should happen with people with severe personality disorders, which basically said we need another toad hall, because, of course, it was by then the 80s, so I couldn't say that. But, but yeah, out of that came Spectrum, which did have a residential facility for people with personality disorders from all over the state, but it also did consultation and training. Um, and, then yeah, it was a great place to work. Right, and you were there for a decade, you said. Yeah, I think it was about 10 years, I don't know. 10 years, right. So I'm just going to ask you a question which obviously will be difficult to answer, but I've, I've always been looking for an answer and obviously I'll never get one. <laughs> with, with severe personality disorders, is, is there any role for medication? Well, look, most of the places I work, well, all the places I work, we mainly focused on undoing all the medication that had get loaded on these people. Mm. And mostly they were better off with none of it, I think. Right. Um, I certainly, when I've seen people individually, have always not encouraged them to go on medication. I just think, well, there's a lot of different reasons. But I think, I don't think you can treat childhood trauma really with medication and... Often I think it comes out of a sort of feeling of helplessness from, from a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, this person is, you know, suicidal. This person is really distressed. I've got 15 minutes before I've got to sort of get them out the door. What am I going to do? Well, it's this pill or that pill. And, you know, again, it, I think it mainly comes out of a feeling of helplessness. of a broader treatment system because of trying to treat people without the resources and the backup. Mm. So, so with childhood trauma... And personality disorder. Do you, do you think psychological intervention can help? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Look, we when, know when just before I had to walk away from Spectrum because of the climate emergency. We'd just done a, a randomised control trial of a, an acceptance and commitment therapy group because I went on from being psychoanalytically inclined with a bit of gestalt to being just full on acceptance and commitment therapy, mm-hmm. and we had got really spectacular results, um, and. You could see people's lives turning around. It was very, very, very powerful. The combination, I think, of actually acceptance and commitment therapy methods with the group was really, yeah, was very, very promising. And look, yeah, we did... I, don't, I can't count how many people came through Spectrum and came, you know went through completely differently. I think, you know, with really severe trauma, it's hard to... It's not like you can take a um, an eraser and rub out all the things that have happened, but you can treat people. You can help people have a completely different relationship to to their thoughts and feelings, mm-hmm. and process the trauma um, so that it becomes more like ordinary memories. Mm-hmm. But the key is values based action, and that's the thing that made me in the end sort of swap over to acceptance and commitment therapy from psychoanalysis which was more just wandering around exploring whatever was there, which is, you know, nothing wrong with that. But in the end, I think the thing that makes people feel better is taking action. It's a sense of agency. It's taking action based on your values. And once that that became clear to me, I I sort of, I found it hard to spend much time on any other um, approach. Right. So you said you you left Spectrum because Mm. of the climate emergency. So I said, what? That's that's a big, big, <laughs> big jump, you know, a fully paid job to a volunteer job. Mm. So, why do you think there's a climate emergency? A lot of people would say, "Ah, oh, well, there's no climate emergency. You're just hallucinating." <laughs> I don't think many these days. Like, sixty six percent of Australians, if you ask them now, mm-hmm. will say there is a climate emergency. So, we're well past the majority. But yeah, I got to hear about it. I was just, I was really. In all my years as a psychologist, I'd been involved in sort of the public service union and some, you know, vaguely political things like that. But I had not been sort of keeping track of any other sort of kind of politics. And 
it was actually going to a local climate group talk in 2007 that um, that where I woke up. It was seeing the uh, that was the year of the what they call the big melt. It was mm-hmm. in the uh, Arctic ice mm-hmm. started just suddenly melting much much faster than expected. And being a, a still a sort of closet mathematician, it was seeing the, the graph going exponential. And, and I got on the mailing list of um, the, from Climate Code Red, the, the book that Philip Sutton and David Spratt were writing. Mm-hmm. And from the moment, that, from just reading the stuff that they were writing, even back in 2007, I knew it was an emergency. I started campaigning just with the local climate group, Darabin Climate Action Now, and just various other things. But the problem with being a climate person is you've got the climate science coming into your inbox every morning and we, we did all these campaigns about a 10-year transition I was involved a bit with the first report from Beyond Zero Emissions about a 10-year transition. Like we knew we had to do it in 10 years so we did all these things, the transition decade campaign and all sorts, all sorts of stuff. We were trying to get a 10-year transition from 2010 to 2020 but by about halfway through, it was obvious we were sort of getting just about nowhere. Mm-hmm. And because I really believed we needed to do it in 10 years, I just... And especially it was, it was partly that values-based action thing. Because I was running groups, telling people the most important thing was values-based action. And then I was realising that I was one of, at that stage, relatively few people who really realised it was that bad. And here I was working as a psychologist. So... I just sort of I took it I took a year off first because I had long service leave, mm-hmm. and then um, and then I just in the end I just couldn't go back. Right. Well, so what? What was it? Just just a crisis, or you just felt you had well, to do something, or well, look, most people look. Let's let's be realistic. Most people at your age would say, "Oh, well, I got a superannuation payment. Why why bother?" Well, I don't. That's not my experience. My experience is that most people don't realise how serious it is. Like most people didn't know back in 2010 that we had 10 years to fix it or we were going to lose things like the Great Barrier Reef, we're going to see thousand-year-old forests going up in smoke. But, but I knew that from 2007. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think once you know it, it's a heavy responsibility. But when you tell people, then mostly they don't just go, oh, well, I'm just going to have a comfortable retirement. I think mostly you tell people, either they get depressed and do nothing or else they um, are prepared to make quite big sacrifices. And that's certainly... You know, certainly what I'm finding with Extinction Rebellion, but with just the general climate emergency movement that was there before Extinction Rebellion, I found the same. Once people know it's that serious and know that it's everything that's at risk, then most people, most people, this is the same thing about values-based action, most people on their deathbed, they don't want to be able to say, oh, I travelled a lot and had a comfortable life and made lots of money. You know, that's... On their deathbed, most people want their life to be about something and mm. they mostly want it to be about people and doing good in the world. Mm. So, so when did you move into Extinction Rebellion? Well, I was involved indirectly before it even started because as a psychologist, the thing that I got stuck on <laughs> was why wasn't the emergency message getting through? And it became clear to me that there's a simply obvious reason that the message doesn't get through, and that's a campaign of well-funded lies. And another is pretty well, pretty well known that scientists are somehow reticent about saying how bad it is, you know, get attacked and they qualify it all the time, or it might be this and it might be that, uncertainties. Mm-hmm. But the thing that became clear to me is that, that at least as big as an obstacle was a third thing, which was this business, which was throughout the climate movement um, and through climate scientists, that you mustn't say it was an emergency, that you mustn't frighten people. Anyway, so I wrote this booklet back in 2018, 2017, um, called Don't Mention the Emergency. And and one day I had a call from someone in the UK. Actually, it wasn't about the book. It was about a talk I'd done, but it was in the lead-up to the book. Mm-hmm. And it was Gail, Gail Bradbrook from UK. And she said, oh, look, we're starting a climate group. Can we use your talk? I said, oh, yeah, I thought she must be starting a local climate group. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> so she was starting Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. So so, look, so I had connection with it from the start, and I was in on the very first call, which where, was where Extinction Rebellion UK was reaching out to Australia. 
So, yeah, I've been with Extinction Rebellion in Australia since the beginning. Right. Well, you could say you're the founding mother. Well... Because of the, the document you wrote. I mean, people well, people always need a theoretical... Thing. It was just one thing that fed in, but it, it did... I think the, the stuff that had been going on with David Stratton, Philip Sutton, and mm. the whole climate emergency mm. movement in Australia, mm. and the council declarations, which again started with our local group, Darabin Climate Action Now, I think that, that we did have an influence in terms of making declare an emergency one of the demands. Mm-hmm. So, so what demands have you put on the uh, on the table these days, climate extinction? Extinction rebellion? Yep. Um, well, the first one is tell the truth. And part that, of that that's is hard. a that's climate hard. emergency. That's but hard. It's, it's governments and have to tell the truth. Yes, mm-hmm. it's hard and we haven't got far with it, but, you know, I think mm-hmm. it's still an important aspiration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell the truth, de- declare an emergency. Then it's, the next one is act now, which is basically zero, we say by 2025, but it's basically as fast as humanly possible. You know, get into emergency mode, move at emergency speed, mm-hmm. get to zero as fast as you possibly can. And then the third one is basically about enhancing or preserving or you could say building democracy, which is that the whole process has to be driven by justice and has to be driven by people and so that the important decisions are made by people's assemblies, which are randomly selected people, a bit like jury jury, duty. Mm -hmm. So it's based on the idea that our political and economic system is broken, that that's the reason why, even though we've got 66% of people thinking it's an emergency, we're not getting any emergency action and that we have to basically have the voice of the people heard in terms of the transition that we've got to make it really fast really fast mm. speed. How have you found um, coping with the COVID-19 restrictions? <laughs> well, because our main mode of action is mass civil disobedience, yes. I'd have to say it hasn't been great. No. Um, but we have used the time. Like, things have just sort of just sprang up sort of in a sort of really fast fashion all around Australia, but with the states very separate. So we actually have spent the virus period getting a national structure, a self-organising system at the national level, which I think will help us a lot as we bring into action with the restriction easing. Mm-hmm. So if if people are interested, and they should be, well, hopefully, what's the best way to make contact with the organisation? As you said, you've got a national structure now, you're working towards a national structure. Look, there's lots of local groups, but mm-hmm. the place to start is just with the website, which is ausrebellion.earth, A-U-S, rebellion.earth. Mm-hmm. So you just go there, you sign up, you'll get newsletters and things. There's, um, there's a thing we call the, ba- the base where you can find all the local groups. There's an organising platform called Mattermost where a lot of the work gets done. So it's, it's quite an open structure. If you just come in through the door, there's a thousand roles for Everybody, we need everybody. Right, right. I was talking to my dentist about this. We need, <laughs> we need dentists. We need doctors. Like I think, like it's a. Yes. We need we need anarchists. We need everybody. We need liberal voters. Yeah, it's a little bit like the COVID nineteen pandemic. We need everybody. We do, yeah. and we need people to pay pay attention to the science and yeah. be prepared to do what it takes. Do you think? So I think the pandemic is a useful sort of illustration. That's right. But that you can save lives and make a difference mm. by taking the science seriously. Mm. So you've got no hopes of retiring then. You're going to do this to the day you die, I assume. I'm going to do it as long as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's sort of hard work, but it also is extremely rewarding. Like the people I get to work with, well, a lot of them are young, which is a really a major reward for us oldies. Um, they're they're young, they're dedicated, they're dedicated, they're brilliant, um, and I think that there is a, an amazing feeling from being part of a movement that's doing an incredibly important job. So yeah, I guess I'll keep going. I'll keep going as long as I can. I, I mean, uh, being a pathological optimist, I sometimes think I will have it solved before I'm dead, but <laughs> probably not. <laughs> probably not. Look, Jane. Look, it's been a pleasure chatting to you, Jane Morton. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I, I interview a lot of people in Radical Australia. You know, some young, some old, in between. And what I find they've all got is this passion, passion for life, passion to make a difference. 
and uh, they're willing to put themselves out there and that's that's what we need and um, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I hope I'll come to your 100th birthday party. Well, I hope to see you down at the Rebellion, Joe. Well, yeah, you could get me down there. I've got a lot of irons in the fire, but uh, why not? It's more important than the Extinction Rebellion, my gosh. Well, you know, I think I'll, ex- I'll be gone before that wins out. But uh, look... But if it, not if you and all your listeners come and help with the rebellion. Well, I, I'm, I do my best. I do my best. At least there's the three listeners. So I, I know two are involved. Okay. Well, Jane, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You look after yourself and keep uh, doing what you're doing. I mean, yeah, you should be, as far as I'm concerned. You're, you're a golden oldie, and you're the type of person that we need in this country. Not just golden oldies, but golden young people. It's just all those people in. It's all those bloody people in between that are too busy earning a living that we've got to worry about. No, no, we need them all. Yeah, I'm, I'm that's sure what I mean. As, I mean, as word goes out through the airwaves on your show, yeah. they're all going to come rushing to sign up. Yeah, what, what was the website again? OzRebellion.Earth. But look, if, if you can use Google, Google Extinction Rebellion Australia. It's not that hard. No. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. There isn't a phone number in case somebody doesn't use the net. No, not really. No. Um, <laughs> you want to find me on Facebook. All right. Be my Facebook friend. That's another way. Oh, a Facebook friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've got a few thousand Facebook friends. So, oh, that's you know, good. you can always message me on Facebook pretty easily. That's great. All right, Jane. Well, you look after yourself. Do what you're doing. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And as far as I'm concerned, you're a great Australian. And we need many more of you around like you. <laughs> All the Jane. very best for the future. <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.